0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times.
2: I'm Griselda Damari brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Today, we're giving International Women's Day the Culture Call treatment. Today, we're doing something slightly unusual. Yes, shocking and unprecedented. <laughs> Not
1: that shocking and unprecedented. We're, we're basically, we're bringing you a live show.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, but it's not any old live show. We're bringing you a conversation with three of the best female minds in the UK talking about women and feminism, what it means to be a woman now and to be a man now. They are Laura Bates, Emily Pine and Emma DeBerry. You know, Grizz, I didn't
1: know these women well before hearing this conversation, but I just loved it. Like whatever I thought I was going to hear... It was not what I heard in the panel. Every one of them were brilliant. It was funny and fun. It was surprising. It gave me new ideas about feminism to bring into conversations with my friends. It was like an ideal panel.
2: I'm very glad to hear that.
1: (laughs) As the Greeks say, it's not a compliment. It's the truth. (laughs) Good. (laughs) It also traveled well. I mean, it felt very relevant to me in the U.S.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it was recorded um, at the FT Next Gen Festival in London uh, at the end of last year. And we have kind of saved up for today just ahead of International Women's Day. But actually, you know, we're listening to this two weeks after Harvey Weinstein was found guilty in New York of two cases of sexual assault. So, you know, this stuff never goes away. But it feels like Weinstein, Me Too, all the things we've been talking about for two and a half years now are right up again in the news agenda.
1: Yeah, it's really current. We're also going to put International Women's Day under the culture call microscope telescope, microscope, <laughs> um, and talk about whether it's helpful or not to have a day in the first place.
2: Yeah, I have feelings about this. Yes, Grizz has feelings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, this episode is for women. It's also for men. It's for all genders. It's for all of you. And we would love to especially hear what you think of this episode today. If you're listening and you really agree or you really disagree with something, we really want to hear your thoughts on it. Maybe we'll include it in the next episode. Um, so email us at culturecall@ft.com
2: and give us all your feelings. We have a great lineup for you in the coming weeks, including the novelist Emma McBride, the TV writer and playwright Jeremy O'Harris. Lily, you recommended his play Slave Play a few months ago, and Ira Glass, who is, of course, the host of This American Life. That should be a fun interview for me. <laughs> Good luck with that one. I was pretty, pretty quick to offer that one to you, Lila.
1: <laughs> yes, seriously. You're like, please, like, take it. I'll, I'll it's all them. yours.
2: <laughs> but before we get into all of that, uh, Lila, what have you been up to?
1: Grizz, I have a few recommendations for you. I've been up to a lot this past couple of weeks. Um, The first thing I want to tell you about is a non-trendy recommendation, which is just a fish that I've really been (laughs) enjoying recently. Uh, It's tilapia, just a flaky white fish, extremely easy to cook, pan-seared, delicious, beautiful. I love it. Highly recommended. Is this something you just discovered? It is something I discovered recently. I bought it at a Trader Joe's. I threw it in my freezer. I... You know, discovered it a couple of days ago, and I just had a great experience with it. So, highly recommended, tilapia. You could
2: give our listeners a recipe. I'll
1: post a recipe. I tried to take a photo, and it was horrendous, so (laughs) that is not being added to my curated social media feed. Um, The second thing I want to tell you about is something that you may already know about. It's some U.S. book publishing drama. I don't really want to give it more steam, but I also think the conversation says so much about our culture right now. So I'll focus on the points that I think are important. And if you guys all want to Google it later, feel free to. Basically, this all starts with the fact that I am coming to you today a little bit tired because I've been up way too late every night this week reading this incredible book called My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell.
2: Oh, I've been hearing about this book.
1: Yeah, it's one of the buzziest books this season. Uh, It's coming out March 10th. It's being called The Next Gone Girl. It's being called Lolita for the Me Too era. Um, It's definitely going to become a movie. (laughs) I just, you know, you can feel it in the air. And honestly, I really think it deserves it. It's just really both disturbing and sad and thoughtful and exciting and really well-crafted. And I wouldn't say that, like, every sentence is is a miracle, but it's just really well put together. Ooh, I, I want to read it. Yeah, and it reads as really true. But so is it fiction? Yes, it reads as true, but it's fiction. Um, it's a fiction story about a 15-year-old girl who has an affair with her English teacher and sort of the psychosexual manipulation of that kind of abuse. Mm. Um, and then it goes forward 17 years to when the main character, Vanessa, is 32, and her teacher's first accuser comes out. And then she has to decide what she wants to do herself, basically. And she's still not fully convinced that he abused her.
2: Wow. You know what that reminds me of is um, that book Three Women, which was everywhere last summer and you interviewed uh, Lisa Todeo for Culture Call.
1: Yes, it's a lot like that book.
2: Yeah, although that was nonfiction. Those were true stories. But there was one particular one which sounds quite similar about a high school teacher and a, and a pupil and that kind of power dynamic was so interesting.
1: Yeah, and the similarities between these stories are, are eerie. I did interview Lisa. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. So this is Kate Elizabeth Russell's debut book. Uh, It seems to be her life's work. Apparently she started writing the characters when she was 16. You know, as you said, it's a work of fiction. The first page is actually dedicated to clarifying the fact that it is a work of fiction, that many details may seem true, but actually it's not her experience. Yeah. And here's where the kind of drama begins. This book is coming out in the aftermath of a controversy around the novel American Dirt by Janine
2: Cummins. Do you know much about that, Grizz? I haven't read the book, but I have read about the controversy around uh, around it and around the idea of can you tell a story that's not your own story?
1: Yeah, so it's I haven't read it either. It's a fictional account of a Mexican mother and her son's journey to the border. Their family gets murdered by a drug cartel. Um, it was really buzzy again. Oprah chose it for her book club pick Um, And then Mexican-American writers and Latinx writers came out to start criticizing it for depicting Mexican people in a stereotypical way. Yeah, It started getting a lot of criticism for being appropriative, especially because it was written by someone who identified as white.
2: Yeah, so how does that connect to My Dark Vanessa?
1: So basically it started this massive debate about who's allowed to write what. Like you said, like who holds the power? Can a white woman write from the point of view of someone who's been marginalized? Um, It's sort of similar to the conversations that we've been having with Ben Lerner and with Caitlin Prest, which are previous guests about autofiction, should you really only be writing from your experience? Mm. And, you know, why did American Dirt get chosen instead of a book written by someone from that community? Sort of who's choosing what gets published? Who holds the power? The publishing world is overwhelmingly white and the people who are making these decisions are overwhelmingly white. And obviously there's like this bigger systemic problem here.
2: I mean, to me, that's the issue. Yeah. I realise it's not for me to say... I'm very aware that it's not for me to say, as a white person, like, this doesn't count as cultural appropriation. You know, I'm not the arbiter of that. But at the same time, I I feel like the problem really seems to be the fact that there are so few books written from the point of view, for example, of a Mexican-American, and so yeah. many books written, from, written by white people. Right.
1: I, I mean, and there is a bigger question of, like, who is a writer allowed to appropriate? Well, I, I don't can, know the answer.
2: I'm not sure that we should be drawing those those lines in a way because I think, you know, writing fiction writing is an act of imagination. We're like empathizing our way, and imagining our way into another character's life. Right. Um, I think obviously if that's done in a way that's really insensitive and offensive, then I'm not defending that. But the actual, just the act of of that kind of creative work, that's the whole project of fiction.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of historical fiction would be wiped out.
2: Well, yeah, right. I mean, it would be very limiting. Um, the the problem is that we don't we don't hear enough voices. We don't have enough diversity of writers. Right. So
1: all of this uh, frustration and uh, energy and anger turned quite quickly to my dark Vanessa, a writer of color who had written a memoir about a similar experience she had had of assault in her adolescence criticized Russell for writing what she says sounds like a fictional take on a reality I lived Mm -hmm. Um, and then a Twitter storm sort of ensued about whether someone who hasn't experienced assault is allowed to write about assault Um, and suddenly Russell who wrote this incredible book ended up having to come out with a very carefully worded statement to say that actually she has indeed experienced a trauma like this wow Um, and you know We all know there are a lot of reasons women aren't allowed to come out and speak about these experiences. Um, Not only are they traumatizing, so they may not want to just out themselves. um, But honestly, like often they're legally bound.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, as we've seen with Weinstein.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I don't know what happened here. But in this case, like, should Kate Elizabeth Russell have had to be forced to share this information by the Twitter community? Like, in my opinion, no.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like, how authentic are you? Did you suffer?
1: Right, right, right. How much did you suffer? It makes me wonder whether we're in a new world where we have to have lived the experiences that we write fiction about, which maybe we don't. But like you were saying, like we do when we come from a position of privilege or we have to be careful about how we use our privilege. There are new rules there that maybe there always should have been, but haven't been. Yeah. I also think that this speaks to this crazy time that we're living in where no one knows the line And in some ways, that's hard because on the one hand, people are made into examples and suddenly have to carry the entire burden of a much bigger problem. Mm. But on the other hand, sometimes we need to sacrifice people to like these cancel culture gods um, (laughs) for change to happen. And that can also be sort of exciting because we get to be having these nuanced conversations that are more respectful that there was like kind of no space for before because we didn't have like a chewy issue to work through the morality of the issue with. Anyway, lots of drama. I don't think Kate Elizabeth Russell is one of those people. She put out an incredible piece of work. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's coming out March 10th. And
2: Grizz, what have you been up to? I have a very uncontroversial and lightweight (laughs) recommendation for this week, which is Barcelona is a lovely city, it turns out. (laughs) Um, I've just been in Spain on holiday. Uh, My sister lives there and we stayed with her in her neighbourhood in Barcelona. She doesn't actually want me to say on the podcast what it's called because she's worried that tourists will go there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is ridiculous. But anyway, um, it was very Catalan, um, very local. It's the kind of place where, you know, people don't go out for dinner until about 11pm. I love that. There's a little sweet little cafe underneath her apartment and they thought tom my husband was very odd when he tried to order a takeaway coffee and gave the barista his keep cup which i don't think (laughs) he had ever seen before everyone in the cafe was like why would you want to take a coffee away with you and sip it whilst you're walking in this ugly (laughs) plastic cup that you carry around with you in your bag um so there were lots of cultural learnings um we also went to a football match. We saw Lionel Messi, who plays for FC Barcelona. Cool. He's apparently the best football player in the world. Um, he scored four goals. So, I mean, <laughs> that seems pretty good. You're like, I'm told Lionel Messi is one of the best football players. Yeah. That says a
1: lot about how much <laughs> football we watch.
2: Yeah, I mean, very little in my case. But, I mean, <laughs> the, it was, you know, you you don't have to know about football to go to a football match, really. I mean, yeah. It's just an amazing atmosphere. All these kids had Lionel Messi shirts, everyone was jumping around. Every time (laughs) he touched the ball, the whole stadium just started, like, roaring. It was... Wow. Yeah, I mean, he's like a god. It was was pretty amazing. So did you do any other cultural things? Yeah, I did do a cultural thing. Um, We went to a place called Hospital St. Paul, which is an Art Nouveau hospital, so kind of early 20th century, uh, designed by... The man who was Gaudi's mentor, he's called Louis Dominic Imontene. Very sorry for my Catalan pronunciation, which I'm sure uh, is incorrect. But um... Listeners
1: should know that Grizz had to pause
2: our discussion to listen to an audio recording of his name. <laughs> yes, thank you, internet. And I hope that's correct. Um... Yeah, I mean, Gaudi's the person who everyone knows about. He, um, The Sagrada Familia is one of the reasons why people go to Barcelona. Um, but this place was really cool. It's the most ornate hospital you'll ever go to. It has amazing coloured tiles everywhere, stained glass. It's orange mm. trees everywhere in the courtyards. Is it a working hospital? It was until very recently. I think until mm. about 15 years ago. Just like an amazing place to be ill, basically. It was really inspiring.
1: <laughs> Sounds like an awesome place to be ill.
2: <laughs> but it's funny because it made me think, actually, that whole maximalist coloured tile stained glass or you know, every surface like carved into is actually back in fashion. That kind of more yeah. is more maximalism. And I got home yesterday and I was kind of catching up on some stuff that had been published uh, over the weekend. And I was reading a piece in the House and Home section of FT Weekend Basically, exactly about this, how maximalism and kind of heritage interiors, so things like William Morris, um, are back in fashion. And it's a big, booming market. You know, people, are, people had enough minimalism. Uh, right. They, want, they <laughs> want pattern and decoration and joy.
1: What a trend I can get behind. We should post that in the um, show notes.
2: Yes, we will. Yes, yeah, 100% a trend I can get behind.
1: Now, on to the main event. Um, Grizz, why don't you set the scene for us of this uh of this live event? Uh
2: the scene was East London on a mm-hmm. cold Saturday uh, <laughs> at the end of last year um and the it was a one-day festival called FT Next Gen which I helped to organize. It was basically a day of talks and workshops and book signings and food and drink um all aimed at the next generation of uh, the readers of FT Weekend, who, it turns out, these readers of the future, are incredibly beautiful and glamorous. Ah, oh, that's such a relief to hear. Yeah, it was a great <laughs> relief to hear. I mean, even the dogs were good looking. It was incredible. <laughs> it was like some kind of fashion week event, but had a kind of edgy, slightly contemporary art feel about it. Awesome. I don't really know. I'm kind of making it up now. But basically, everyone was very well dressed and <laughs> kind of young. And just it, there was a nice atmosphere it was quite a diverse array of stuff on offer. It wasn't just cultural. Um, the first mm-hmm. event of the day was all about kind of millennial finance and how banks are changing and uh, the CEO of Monzo, which is that, you know, neon orange debit card that everyone has. Yeah, it's
1: like a, a trendy British <laughs> debit card.
2: If <laughs> you can believe that, it can be trendy now. It's a cool now. debit yeah. card. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Anyway, he was there. Um there was a panel about a fashion sustainability problem from people from Burberry and Kering. There was a panel of interior designers doing kind of life hacks. So, you know, if you're doing it, you're flat on a budget. It looked so good. It was
1: good. From good. afar. Yeah. yeah. It was really busy. They're organizing one in New York this year, yeah. um, which I'm excited about. And then I think they're having one again in London.
2: Yes. The same time yeah. of the year, I think in November.
1: Cool. So we'll let listeners know about it so you can come and hang out with us in real life.
2: I'm sure everyone would love to do that.
1: (laughs) That's where we'll be, being trendy with our trendy dogs. So as part of this, Grizz, you did a panel on feminism.
2: Yeah, I did a talk about feminism. So the guests were basically the three people who I really wanted to come, who I invited first. They all said yes. That never (laughs) happens. That's a dream. Thank you to whoever was looking down on me that day. Uh, Laura Bates is the founder of a kind of campaign and platform called Everyday Sexism, which started in 2012. So kind of at the beginning of this current moment of feminism. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a place where women could share their stories of everyday sexism. Also on the panel was Emily Pine, who is an Irish writer and academic. She teaches at Trinity Dublin. And Mm -hmm. she wrote this personal essay collection recently called Notes to Self, which is about all sorts of things, including um, the struggle to conceive a child, um, about kind of menstruation, about her father's alcoholism, about self-harm, kind of all the things, basically. And she just lays it all bare. And it did phenomenally well. It really kind of struck a nerve with people. And then Emma Dabiri, who is one of my favourite writers, she published a book last year called Don't Touch My Hair, which is about kind of the politics of black hair and Mm. how that kind of speaks directly to culture. Um, Yeah, it's an excellent book. You talked about it in the 2019 roundup. Yeah, exactly. I kind of picked it out as one of my favourite books that was published last year. And Emma's an incredible speaker. She... I should also say, she was breastfeeding her (laughs) five-week-old baby on stage. That's amazing. The baby makes an appearance, you'll you'll hear. (laughs) (laughs) Listen closely, you can hear the baby. Yeah. Basically, it was a huge honor. I was just sitting there with these three people whose work I've loved and admired, and they were just great.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited for everyone to hear it.
2: So the hook is
1: International Women's Day, and I'm curious what you think of it as a day.
2: I mean, I'm kind of, I'm sceptical generally of things like this, where a hashtag becomes a day for brands to jump onto a pop feminism bandwagon.
1: Right, it becomes sort of like an Instagram holiday where people post photos of their moms and wives.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like
1: major corporations pretend they care about women.
2: Yeah, and like really does that serve anyone? I don't know. Then I also feel like, well, you know, every day is surely International Women's Day. We make up more than half the world. Um, international women are everywhere. So right. why do we need a day for us? So I feel mixed.
1: I feel that way. And at the same time, I also feel that like maybe it's an organizing opportunity. I mean, I looked into it and I found out that a German revolutionary named Clara Zetkin proposed it at the 1910 International Socialist Women's Conference. Oh, Wow. Yeah, like, it's, it's been around for, like, double our lifetime. Mm. And she kind of said that March 8th should be honored as a day annually in memory of working women. And that, I think, is cool. I mean, I don't remember as a kid anyone caring about International Women's Day. I feel like it really exploded with <laughs> uh, social media. But um, I like that, like, the U.N. can use it as a way to draw attention to all the ways that women are being subjugated around the world. And, uh, I mean, I'll take the emphasis It's cool that it's been around for so long. I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah, I know. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) So before we start, one thing that I found uh, was sprinkled throughout the conversation is just um, the different waves of feminism. First wave, second wave, third wave. Now we're in the fourth wave. I mean, a lot of this panel is grappling with what fourth wave feminism means. Mm. Um, And so... Maybe we can sort of just quickly, like, give everyone a quick refresher on the different waves of feminism.
2: <laughs> a fun feminist guide. Maybe we can put some jaunty music below it. Cool. OK, <laughs> so first wave feminism. That's the suffragettes. It's the suffrage movement, which means the right to vote. It was women getting equality yeah. over their own political decisions and the right to own property. Um, that's, like, till about 1920, right? Yeah. Second wave Second
1: wave feminism is like 1963 to the 1980s. Think like my hippie mom. (laughs) Think um, Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique. It was like a wave that was about not political but social equality. It's like when housewives got mad and the idea that sexism is systemic and that women are being screwed over by being forced to be housewives and having to pretend they like it. It was about the Equal Pay Act and the right to birth control. And it's also when feminists started to get... The reputation for being bra burners, you know? In the 80s is when people started to think being a feminist meant hating men and not shaving your legs and this sort of false narrative that still remains. Because as we all know, feminism is about
2: equality between men and women. Third wave. This is where I think things get a bit confusing because lots of things that started in the third wave, so in the 1990s, are really influencing feminism today. And it's difficult to separate Mm. some of this stuff. So intersectionality... Um, as an idea really came about in the 1990s and has taken root today. Um, This is where we think about the ways that race, class, ability intersect and overlap and how they affect the experiences of women as they move through the world. So women of colour and working class women often have a much harder experience as a woman than a privileged white woman.
1: And the last is Fourth Wave, and that's what we're in now. This is sort of a deepening of our understanding of intersectionality. It's, like, very much defined, I think, by technology and the technology revolution, the fact that it's online, women are sort of empowering each other, raising each other up, more women are running for office, Me Too is happening, But it's also full of more complicated questions, and that's the kind of stuff we're digging into now. Um, I also think a crucial part of this wave is the acknowledgement that the way that we raise boys and men is also a feminist issue, that they should have more opportunities to express their emotions.
2: And that was our guide to the waves of feminism. (laughs) Condensed. Hundreds of years
1: in 45 seconds. So without further ado, I can't wait for you all to hear this talk. Let's get into it.
2: Hello, um, welcome to FT Next Gen Festival. Laura, I'm going to start with you. So fourth wave feminism, which is sort of today's feminism, emerged in in around 2012, so the same year as everyday sexism was set up. I wondered if you could say something about what defines it kind of broadly and how it's different. Gosh,
0: it's it's such a difficult question, such a big (laughs) question. Um, I always think in the course of my work, having met the women who are at the coalface of of this movement and this work, that it must be very frustrating for lots of them when we talk about the emergence of different waves, because, actually, the women who are at the coalface, who are working in our frontline sexual violence services, who are lobbying the government behind the scenes for crucial changes in funding and policy, never went away, never go away. Perhaps there's something in that that We are trying with this, perhaps with this wave of feminism, if we want to call it that, to get beyond this idea of a a spotlight, you know, on one or two people as, you know, the voices of that wave or the leaders of a particular wave of feminism. I'm not sure it means that we've achieved it. For me, I look at the young people in the schools I, I go to and there has been such a shift even between 2012 and the schools I visit today, um, it it used to be that there was no framework for them, that there would often be perhaps one girl who called herself a feminist and was really bullied and ridiculed for it.
2: Emily, as as you're working as an academic, you um, work with young people a lot. Have you seen a shift in the way that it's it's perceived and and spoken about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. How's it going? (laughs) Um, I've been teaching for 10 years, And when I started teaching in 2008, 2009, and I'm teaching at the university, so my 18 and 19-year-old students would kind of sit on their hands or throw themselves on the floor under the desk rather than (laughs) admit to being feminist in any way. And also, I couldn't believe the ways in which they were saying they weren't. You know, that they would say... you know, I'm not a man-hater, and I couldn't believe that those were the terms of the debate that had, had got lost to that extent, and now it's completely different. So people are kind of card carrying feminists, and it's part of, I think, a much larger sense of a movement, and I, I see it large. I was, I was talking to a student the other day about climate change, And she said, well, climate change obviously is a feminist issue. And that sense of the way in which it's not just intersectionality in terms of identity politics, but the intersection and the overlapping of different kinds of vulnerabilities and different kinds of regimes of power. And... I see that both in terms of the fact that you know they're going on student strikes in order to go on climate marches and I also see it in terms of their lived experience and that for me I think has been one of the largest shifts that I would have been brought up in a not just a feminist household but an all female household where even the hamster was female right <laughs> and so grew up with a really strong mother kind of who was an activist in Ireland for equal pay and for equality legislation at work. And so for me... Feminism was always identified with working, Mm. right, and with wages, and with kind of structural change. And in Ireland, certainly, we have seen a lot of structural change. I mean, the most recent manifestation of that is the abortion referendum last year, where finally women are equal citizens for the first time in the history of the state. Well, I wanted to ask both you and Emma
4: about this as well, because you're both originally from Ireland. Do you feel like this is the time of change particularly there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't live in Ireland anymore, and I haven't lived there um, since I finished school, but I still spend a lot of time there. Mm. It's better now. <laughs> it's unrecognisable. Yeah. I would say the reasons that I left the country, mm. basically many of the reasons I left the country. Sorry, there's, I don't know if you can hear the slurping. <laughs> it's <laughs> I cool. Say, but, uh, I feel quite aware of it, but hey, it's a feminist panel, so this exactly. lived <laughs> feminism in action. Um so yeah, a lot of issues that um, existed in Ireland that I thought would never even be addressed, mm. I'm seeing massive progress being made. Yeah, so it, it does is. That speak to
3: your experience as well. It does, and I remember in like 1989, 1990, when I was about 14, you know, and talking, having conversations with my friends about how we couldn't wait to emigrate because none of us could imagine our lives in that country. I mean, divorce yeah. wasn't even legal, you know, until 1997. And so the pace of change has been extraordinary considering that. In fact, the abortion referendum passed by a larger majority than the divorce referendum 20 years previously. And so there was a real sense of shift. And for me, the really inspiring thing was that it was through storytelling it was through women and men telling their stories, their experiences, being so brave and risking so much to talk about their experience of the termination of pregnancy. And that changed people's minds. And that movement, I mean, it, we live in a better country as a result, not just because it has changed how women's bodies are legislated, but because it changes how women are seen and how women get to talk and speak about their bodies, and be in their bodies, and that's been, that was the unanticipated, kind of unprecedented thing for me about it. And storytelling is something that we've been hearing a lot of, I mean
2: Me Too was a movement that originated in storytelling, it was I'm going to tell you my
3: story as well, Me Too. Um, Everyday sexism. I mean... It's exactly about story. Exactly telling. that. Yeah. You can identify with it on an individual, personal level because someone's telling you their story. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, Laura, I mean, you, you're a testament to the power of stories and, and the movement that you started. Um, when you think about Me Too, do you think storytelling has been successful? Absolutely. I mean, I think
0: it has been transformative. And I think that the courage it takes for people to share the stories that they have shared must never be underestimated, particularly in a world in which we continue to rip them to shreds after they do. And because of that, and because of the sheer guts that it takes, it makes me very angry and frustrated when people are trying to measure Me Too in terms of success or failure. I mean, there was a wave of um, newspaper articles, debates around um, a year after the reemergence of the movement, if you like, because of course you know it was originally started by Tarana Burke. But in its most recent iteration, you saw these headlines saying, "Has Me Too failed? Has Me Too really changed anything? How much has Me Too really achieved?" And really, what those people were asking was, "Have?" this wave of survivors sharing the stories of the enormous abuse and trauma that they've suffered somehow stopped it and changed it. And the question should be, what have we done to respond to those stories? The success of that movement was to force us to acknowledge that those problems that were previously invisible existed. And once we know that they exist, it's no longer acceptable to demand that the change be created by the survivors sharing their stories. The question then must be, How have we held perpetrators to account? What kind of change has happened from the employers who failed these women so desperately? What have governments and policymakers done to respond to this incredibly courageous outpouring of stories? Rather than has the movement itself changed anything? Yes, Mm. of course it has. It's changed the conversation. But no one ever said that that was the end of the road. It was the first step, really. I
2: think the thing that I sometimes find difficult, though, is that we're still thinking about the men. We're still thinking about... Uh, the men whose lives were changed because of Me Too, those are often the news stories. And actually, the focus should be on the women and what happens to them after they've told their stories. There seems to be quite an imbalance there.
0: Yes, and I think it's enabled us to create this narrative of a witch hunt, right? I mean, how ironic that the words <laughs> witch hunt have been used to describe the Me Too movement, but they have. And we have this kind of pervasive sense that poor men are running scared, that men everywhere are losing their jobs because of entirely fabricated accounts of, you know, a brushed knee 10 years ago. That <laughs> it's actually extraordinary. If you look at the numbers, and we can look at the numbers, the New York Times actually did a, a really in-depth investigation of this, and they found 200 men who they found... Two have experienced some form of repercussion as a result of allegations that had come out after the Me Too movement. Now, the first thing is that this idea that there's no due process is nonsense. That isn't, that hasn't been the case. In a few cases, in 200 cases, let's say, there have been some repercussions, most of them professional, not even legislative, not even in terms of justice, but just in terms of people's jobs. Well, 12 million women shared their stories. So that's the justice gap we've got. We've got 12 million women abused, sharing their trauma, and 200 of them seeing justice. And yet, with those numbers, we're able to turn around and say, it's a witch hunt against men. It's
3: quite extraordinary, really. And I think also undermines the number of men who welcomed Me Too like, so loudly and who wa- also want to work in workplaces where that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you know? I just, again, the, the way in which it, it continues to operate as a narrative, as a binary, yeah. you know, with, with women on one side and
4: men on the other side, seems absolutely mad to and me. And another thing that really strikes me is that when Me Too began, it was actually also to address... Men who'd been victims of sexual abuse as well. And that and that gets entirely overlooked as well. That never gets mentioned. Mm.
2: I want to kind of drill down a bit into this idea of the personal is political, because Me Too is about the personal being political. And this was of course a kind of rallying cry of feminists in the 1960s originally, so the kind of second wave. If we're talking about waves. And Emily, your essays, your book Notes to Self, is extremely personal. The opening chapter is about your father's struggle with alcohol. There's essays on period pain, on miscarriage, on on trying to conceive a child. When we're thinking about the the personal and, and the personal being political, how do you feel about this label that your book has got, which is confessional?
3: Writing. How does that feel? Well, I'm not confessing anything. (laughs) Because I ain't nothing wrong, fuck that shit. Right? (laughs) I love the phrase personal is political. Mm. And it sounds strange because while I was writing it, I felt like I was discovering what that meant. And the, that when I was writing, I kept trying to talk about we as a society and um, make big claims and effectively try and write like Rebecca Solnit. And it turns out I'm a crap Rebecca Solnit. <laughs> so I thought I would be just, you know, try and be Emily Pine instead. Um, and bring it back to the personal and to own that. And it still, it felt like to me, and that's partly because of my academic training, but it's also partly because of this kind of larger social idea that the personal is domestic and therefore on a lesser level. For me, it felt like a radical claim to say, not just the personal is political, but the personal is powerful. I mean, people, people say confessional. People also say, your book is so honest. And they say it with that kind of questioning tone of voice, like, why would you do that? <laughs> and, and I think, well, what else have we got? When I was writing this essay called Notes on Bleeding and Other Crimes, and I was writing, you know, as a 4 year old woman about menstruation and kind of mixed emotions about having a female body, and I thought, this must be out of date. This must be, surely surely, surely the new generation have solved this. And then I have lots of younger women saying to me, thank you for naming it, thank you for talking about bodies and mucus and things like that. And that's the extraordinary thing. These are still taboos that we're breaking, and I realize that if we're talking about waves, that there are waves of silence, and you break the silence, and it's an incredible thing because it reforms, mm. and you have to keep breaking it. And that sense of having to, to keep going and keep doing it. Uh, and you've already alluded to this, Laura. The problem with that is that the burden falls disproportionately on the person who's trying to break it. And it, f- seems, it feels like it's still falling on the bodies of women. Emma De
2: Beery, your book is both very personal and very political as well.
4: Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think with um, a lot of my writing, I tend to ground it in my own in my personal experience. But then from that point, I kind of jump off to look into um, more historical narratives or wider pictures. But I tend to start as a point of origin with my own with my own personal experience. But I'm also aware, like being. Um, a sociologist who so do my PhD in sociology. I'm also aware of some of the tensions around holding experience as a sacrosanct thing that can't ever really be challenged. There's a feminist writer called Joan Scott. I think her paper's in 1992, and it's on experience. And it looks at some of the challenges of using experience alone as a method for transformational politics, and it talks about how experience can name injustices, but it doesn't necessarily challenge the processes through which they're created. So for me, I tend to kind of like have this mix of, I guess, the, the, the personal and the far broader kind of systemic, Mm. um, and the more critical within that as well. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) something that I loved about Don't Touch My Hair was the way that it kind of brings you into your childhood in Dublin and and growing up and being a teenager, um, mixed with um, sociology and anthropology about Africa. And it feels like you kind of tread that line very, very carefully and very beautifully. There's a bit that's quite early on, I think, where you... Um, say that the words that are used now to describe black hair, so unruly, unmanageable, coarse, are in fact words that were used to describe colonised people Mm -hmm. and that these words themselves have kind of migrated
4: to hair. Yeah, so a lot of the language, or actually most of the language um, to describe, let me say all of the adjectives that would normally be used to describe my hair texture are pejorative, but they're also, as you've just uh, described, it's kind of the language of the plantation or the colony. Um, The most complimentary one that you might hear is maybe like defiant. But if it's not defiant, then yeah, coarse, unruly, unmanageable. That kind of terminology would be inappropriate or unsuitable to be used to describe black people today, even though historically and until very recently there is that kind of language being used to describe black people. That language hasn't disappeared. It's just shifted to head height. So it's still very much... In the, in the discourse. So I really wanted to explore that relationship between black hair and language and what that kind of said more broadly about the relationship between kind of black and white and the role or the place of black people kind of in, in today's society and how some of that could be revealed. Um, and something else I want to talk about is where the beauty standards, and particularly when applied to women, are
2: changing. And in your book, Don't Touch My Hair, you say, people at school would say, uh, you're lucky, um, you're pretty, and it almost made up for you being black. So there's this kind of mixed message that's um, both fetishization and discounting of the black female body
4: yeah absolutely so that the section that you've just taken was kind of from when I was a teenager but when I was a small child primarily because of my hair and um, the way kind of femininity was constructed around having like long hair and kind of like ponytails and this kind of swishing hair that I very much didn't have I certainly wasn't considered like a, a pretty child when I got into my teens that shifted and there was that's a quote that was said to me, but that was something that was said to me in other ways quite often. And it was just like this idea of like, oh yeah, you're lucky that you're pretty because you can kind of, yeah, almost, you can almost get away with being black. That kind of almost compensates for it. And that was said to me by people that I'm still friends with to this day. They'd probably deny that they said it, but (laughs) I have receipts. Um, (laughs)
3: uh,
4: So it was very, it was contradictory. So beauty was very much this thing You were taught that your value could only be determined by your physical attractiveness, which is deeply problematic anyway. But then in my case, and because there weren't really any other black people in the country, this is very much something that seemed deeply personalised to me, Um, although I know it is the experience of many black people, particularly ones that grow up in very kind of white environments. So this kind of other caveat that perceived prettiness was the price I had to pay for being black, I became really obsessed with my appearance, and I was just like, better keep being pretty. Um, and so I was like, I was obsessed with like um, with, with makeup. I spent hours doing doing my makeup. I still love makeup, but I'm far more relaxed about it. But before, I wouldn't, um, yeah, I kind of wouldn't leave my house without maybe like a two-hour routine of like very, very heavy makeup. it was very much like a mask that I hid behind.
2: And um, I mean, both of you work with young people. Do you do you feel like beauty standards have shifted since kind of we were young? Do you do you sense changes? I think
0: it's I think it's going to take a long time. I think we we can't underestimate how utterly deep seated it is, how systemic, how um, ingrained in just every part of our world, of everything we see. It's not just about the things that we say overtly, it's about the woman in the bikini on the side of your sandwich packet and boots. It's about the images of the female body, which are so... So narrow, which mm. I think our brain does this thing where we see perhaps a thousand pictures of a female body every week. And if we see something a thousand times, our brain tells us without us thinking about it, I know what that thing looks like, that thing, woman. I know what it looks like. But if you put those thousand images side by side and look at them, you suddenly realize, I haven't seen a thousand women. I've seen one woman a thousand times. I've seen the same extremely young, heavily made up, very thin, white skinned, long legged, long haired you know, large-breasted woman a thousand times and it sends me this idea that is woman and it's such a small step from there to that is what woman should be or how perhaps woman should be judged or valued. And we know, we, we know the, the numbers that show how much that drip, drip, drips into our brains without us ever noticing it because we know, for example, from a, an all-party parliamentary group report on body image that girls are five years old when they first start to worry about the size and shape of their bodies. We know that a quarter of seven-year-old girls have dieted to lose weight and that by the time they reach the age of 10, that number goes up to 80%. We know that the number one magic wish for teenage girls in America is to be thinner. It's all the other things that teenage girls have to wish for. And I think when it... it it pervades your sense of self Mm. from such a young age it becomes a very difficult thing to root out later so yes we're having better conversations yes we're seeing some lip service paid in the fashion and advertising industry to some small examples of diversity but are we really there yet in terms of sort of routing this this insidious problem that's kind of under the skin of our whole society Mm. everywhere you look I don't
4: think so Something that I'd like to add there is um, even with the advances in terms of diversity and there being a broadening of types of beauty that are acknowledged and celebrated, to me, that is not necessarily a solution. There are still very much archetypes. They may have broadened out. There are are more of them now. But it doesn't shift the emphasis away from beauty being the, the most important Thing that a woman's value mm. is judged on. Something that I write about in Don't Touch My Hair is um, some of the critique that existed around like the Black is Beautiful movement in the 1970s, which has parallels to what we're seeing today. The late, great Toni Morrison and others were critical of this idea of Black is Beautiful because it was still kind of performing for the white gaze and it was mm. trying to prove to white society that black people were beautiful. That was one of the critiques. The other one was that the way Black is Beautiful operated within Black Power in the 1970s was the the absolute converse of the stereotypical white blonde beauty. Mm. So it was the darker skin, kinkier hair textures... It was one type of beauty that was being celebrated. Not everybody in the black community conformed to that type of beauty. The aim would be for beauty standards to not exist rather than to just add more beauty standards, if that makes sense.
3: And I think your use of the word, Emma, of the word archetype is really important Mm -hmm. here because whether it's beauty or other standards that we're held to, this idea that there is an ideal type yeah. and, you know, and that we should aspire to it. And the thing that always gets me is that if you then diverge from that, right, if you don't fit into the box... And for me, and one of the things I write most about in Notes to Self is about not being able to become a mother. And I really wanted to have children, I really wanted to become a mother, and, and it, it didn't work, it, it didn't happen. Sorry to ruin the end of the book, but. um, (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) That then you have to reinvent yourself. And you end up, and this kind of, there's an internal narrative where you think, okay, well, there's the thing. I don't fit the thing, so now I have to measure myself against that thing. And now I have to go, you know, start this internal narrative where I say, it's okay, Emily, you're just as good, you're just different, you know. And actually that that narrative is exhausting. Mm. And that these archetypes are not just seen as aspirational goals, but as compulsory. Mm. And again, to come back to this idea of, of what's the difference with fourth wave feminism, I really feel like in my own life that I was trying to live up to a patriarchal idea of what success was. And I think now we're thinking about, well, let's just throw the patriarchal ideas out the window because they are broken. So throw away the standards across the board and and live our our actual lives as ourselves.
2: What do you think needs to change? I mean, you've kind of answered this, but I mean, more specifically, what do you think needs to change in the way that society treats both mothers
3: and non-mothers? So one of the things I, I used to say to myself is that when you know, we were going through the years of trying to have children was that I would look around me for models of people who were happy and childless. And so I feel like it's my duty to say at the same time that I carry this enormous grief and mourning around with me um, I'm, I'm living the childless life, and I'm really happy, and come on in, the water is lovely. Um, that sense of, uh, actually, uh, again, I would have been amazed a couple of years ago, had I formulated this idea that to talk about not being a mother was a taboo subject. And yet, it's only as I've started to do it, that I realize that it is. And that you, you don't necessarily have a model outside yourself, so you have to you are your own model and that that's okay or more than okay there's something enormously (laughs) babies are brilliant (laughs) they're great and I you know admire my friends with kids so much There's something enormously free about not being able to fit into the box and as a result getting to make your own life and that's something I wouldn't I didn't anticipate and I think the more that we can talk about that that actually if you that's, and I, I'm really allergic to this idea that has been current in the, recently about failure being, you know, just one gr- stop to success. <laughs> and failure is shit. Failure is terrible. It feels awful. It is crushing. It is heartbreaking. So you live with it, and you learn to carry it, and then you do something else instead. And I think it's interesting, because in relation to everything we've been talking
2: about, the archetypes that exist for women who aren't mothers are very different. We don't really talk about men
3: who aren't fathers. That's
2: Mm. that's just not a thing. It's not a conversation.
3: We're defined by our biology Mm. in so many ways still. Um, Laura, I want to come on
2: to you and talk about teenagers, Mm. um, because you spend a lot of time talking to young people in schools and in other contexts, and you published um, a young adult novel called The Burning, And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to publish the novel um, and what you kind of hoped to do with it. I wanted to publish it because I
0: still, I felt and still feel that there is this, this extraordinary trauma ordeal, really, that young women and girls are living through that we just still don't really know about. We are living in this moment where we think you know, young people can be anything they want to be, girls have never been performing so well at school, girls have never had it so good, and yet we are also living in a moment where girls are facing abuse of proportions that I think are really quite unimaginable. If you haven't grown up online and if you haven't grown up in this particular moment, We are at this very odd moment in history. We never really talk about, even though it is utterly unique, it's never happened before, it will never happen again, where a generation of digital natives is being parented and educated by a generation of non-digital natives. And the absolute gulf in experience between those two groups is just massive, it's a chasm, and yet we don't really even acknowledge it, let alone really think about what it means to try and cross that gulf. What it means, I think, is that we think young people are safe. We think that that girls have all of these fantastic opportunities. We don't acknowledge the reality, which is that a third of girls are experiencing sexual violence before they leave school and at school. So we know that 30% of 16 to 18-year-old girls have experienced unwanted sexual touching at school. We are in a situation where a third of our girls are being sexually assaulted at school and I'm repeating it because I think it takes time Mm. to sink in. There was a a recent BBC Freedom of Information request, which, without even receiving word back from all of the police forces they asked, discovered that over a three-year period, there had been 5,500 sexual offences reported to the police as having occurred inside UK schools, including 600 rapes. Now, if you work that out over the three-year period and the number of days in the average school term, that means that every day of term a rape is being reported in a school. And just think for a moment about how low the rates of reporting are for rape. Now, we know in the general population that they're only around 15%. We know that at university level, they're around 10%. So we can probably suggest that they are even lower. So we are talking about what it's not, I think, overdramatic to describe as an epidemic of sexual violence at school, not even just amongst young people generally, but at school itself. And I suddenly realised that this, this mainstream kind of non-fiction feminist conversation that I was part of would have passed me by completely as a teenager. Mm. I didn't read non-fiction as a teenager, and I would not have known what the word feminism meant if you'd asked me. But... I learned from books, from novels, from the heroines who taught me ideas about breaking boundaries and stepping aside from stereotypes in a way that was quite intuitive. And I wanted to have an opportunity to explore some of these ideas in in that different way, hopefully to reach more young people. But also I hope to give adults a a view, a window into that world, because although the burning is fictional, there is almost nothing that happens to its protagonist Anna that hasn't happened in real
2: life to I mean, a young woman's things woman like I've slut shaming with. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for. Us, so I just want to say thank you to our brilliant panelists, Laura Bates, Emma Deverry, and Emily Pine. Thank you all so much. <laughs>
1: So, Grizz, I loved that. I mean, you created sort of the ideal dinner party for yourself. You all were in conversation (laughs) more than you were having to structure anything. The one point that stuck with me that I've been thinking about for days is Emma Dabiri's point about there being archetypes for beauty and that even black is beautiful still provides a beauty standard. Yeah. Um, That there's like an ideal type that we should aspire to and that the aim is for beauty standards to not exist versus just having more beauty standards. I can't even envision a world in which that's possible. Like, I can't even imagine what that looks like.
2: I don't know. I think I can. It would be so empowering if it's not black is beautiful, big is beautiful. If is beautiful is not the point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I can imagine it, and it would be amazing, and I would love to live in that world. I mean, this sounds weird, but you know, one of the reasons I like doing a podcast is because you're you're invisible. Yeah, it's a rare opportunity where we're judged
1: by what we say, not by how we look. Mm. The other part that stood out to me is when Laura Bates talked about how we measure Me Too Mm. and the success of Me Too. And the question should be, what have we done to respond to the stories, not did it work? And especially in the aftermath of these Initial Weinstein trials, that feels more prevalent than ever.
2: I started thinking about this because last summer, two of the books I read were essay collections by Rebecca Solnit, who's a feminist writer in her late 50s, and by Gia Tolentino, who we had on the podcast, um, a millennial staff writer at The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the differences in the way that these two women of very different generations approached this question of like, how successful has Me Too been? And Gia wrote this piece in The New Yorker, which was really widely shared and wi- widely read at the time about the Kavanaugh um, mm-hmm. appointment. And she says that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's um, appointment to the Supreme Court was not despite the Me Too movement. He was appointed because of the Me Too movement, i.e. It was, it's part of mm. the backlash against this whole uprising of feminism. The implication is, have we overstated the success of, of Hashtag Me Too? Oh. Um, which is, you know, it's kind of depressing. And that's this yeah. is someone who's 30 writing this. Um, Rebecca Solnit says, you know, no, wait. Kavanaugh was not a referendum on Me Too. Right. We're talking here about thousands of years of patriarchy and they can't be toppled in 12 <sighs> months, which was the distance between Weinstein, the accusations coming out, and Kavanaugh being nominated. And she says, you know, the, the thing that was great about Me Too is it wasn't the beginning of women speaking up. Women have been speaking up for mm-hmm. centuries, but it was the start of people really, in a, in a big way, really listening yeah. and really responding. And we're starting to see those kind of trickle-down effects of the response. And it's not going to be something that happens really fast, but it's something that's starting.
1: Yeah, and even a backlash means that it's working.
2: Well, yeah, reading her book, it was quite reassuring to be thinking about here's a woman who remembers the 1960s and she's saying, wait a minute, we've actually come really far. Um, in my lifetime, things have changed a lot. I mean, in her lifetime, she's been through three full waves. <laughs> it's been a roller coaster for Rebecca's. <laughs> yeah. Feminism roller coaster. <laughs> That's it for this week. We'd especially love to know what you thought of today's episode. We'd be amazed if this subject didn't raise some feelings, and so we want to hear them. You can continue the conversation with us on Twitter. You can find the podcast at FT Culture Call. And as always, you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com. If you like what you hear, the best way
1: to support the show is to share it with your friends who you think may like it. Um, Put it on your Instagram stories, uh, send it in a text, whatever. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. We
2: will both be back in two weeks' time. The suggested reading is Emma McBride. Her new novel, Strange Hotel, It's a great book, but also it's only 140 pages long. Why is it homework, Grizz? Is it that we may be interviewing her next episode? <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. Crucial detail. We are interviewing her next time. Yeah, that's <laughs> going to be a good one. I should mention that. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood and our theme music is composed by Fatum with additional tunes from Tristan Cassell-Delavoie.